Hello and welcome to the EdSurge podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Emily Tate, a reporter here covering K-12 and early childhood education. Other than their parents and caregivers, children spend more time with their teachers and school staff than with almost any other adults. So when something is wrong or seems off, educators are often the first to notice. As a result, educators end up detecting a significant number of child abuse cases each year. Maybe a usually social student is sitting off by himself at lunchtime. Or a student is just acting differently at the playground. A teacher might pick up on that. Or a hallway exchange or behavior on the school bus could lead a staff member to key in on potential struggles in a student's home life. But with the arrival of the coronavirus pandemic, these situations where trouble might be noticed have disappeared overnight. And when remote learning ramped up, authorities noted that reports of child abuse and neglect dropped dramatically, between 30 and 70 percent nationally. We're now seven months into this pandemic. And to get a sense of where this issue stands, I connected with Bart Klicka, Chief Research and Strategy Officer at Prevent Child Abuse America. Klicka believes that educators and school leaders can work with parents to create a home environment where abuse and neglect don't happen at all. He says that remote learning and the increased family engagement it has brought may actually create opportunities for educators. So in the early days of the pandemic, there were reports coming out that child abuse rates had declined rapidly ever since students began remote learning in the spring. Um, Do you have a sense of how much those numbers dropped and why? I mean, on its face, fewer reports of child abuse would seem like a good thing. Early reports since the shelter-in-place orders are suggesting that actual reports to official agencies like Child Protective Services are down. Back in the spring, I think it was in April, there were some researchers uh, from Washington, uh, Washington University in St. Louis that wrote an article that talked about the declines in reports of child abuse and neglect. And from a state level, those numbers were decreases anywhere from 30 to 70 percent of cases on the decline. And there's been a lot of discussion as to what those declines are about. Um, And what a lot of people have speculated is that because of the shelter in place orders, kids are no longer in schools. And because kids are no longer in schools, They don't have educators, they don't have principals, they don't have the bus drivers uh, kind of looking out for kids and and noticing some of the subtleties that we otherwise might see if kids were in person. And so what has been suggested is because we don't have that face-to-face interaction with kids, that actual reports, because of these kind of subtle, detectable Uh, behaviors and observations aren't happening, um, that we see decreased reports of child abuse. So is it fair to assume then that school staff, be it teachers, bus drivers, coaches, uh, administrators, food service workers, make up somewhere in the range of 30 to 70 percent of reports of suspected child abuse and neglect? So our Our federal data that we use from the National Child Abuse and Neglect Data System, which is our big federal system where we get a lot of our national statistics, looking at that data on any given year, around 20% of reports come in from educators or from the education system. So they account for about 
uh, 20% of the reports that we get uh, for child abuse. Um, Understanding that you don't have um, concrete numbers in front of you and, and it's hard to kind of understand exactly what's going on right now, but you know, we've been doing this for seven months. Um, and you know, most shelter in place orders have been lifted. Some schools are back in session in person. So have reports of child abuse and neglect changed as the pandemic has persisted? Like how did the summer months of last year compare to this year, for example? So I have yet to see the comparison of data from uh, previous summers to this summer. We know, uh, again, the the work from some researchers at Washington University in St. Louis, um, they did some work looking at drops in child abuse reporting over summer months, and they suggest that there's about a 16% drop. Uh, in in reports of child abuse during the summer months. I have yet to see comparisons of what that looked like uh, over the summer, and it will be some time before we actually have good uh, kind of national level data on what happened during the summer months as a result of COVID. What are some of the telltale signs of abuse and neglect that teachers are trained to look for in person, those kind of subtle um, cues or those moments on the playground or in the lunchroom that you mentioned? Um, and how do those transfer to a virtual environment? So I think under what we would say is pre-COVID conditions, I think a lot of uh, the ways in which the general public and, and holding in people's minds, the way that we think about child abuse is sort of the, the image of bruises, of broken bones, kind of these more severe Uh, forms of physical abuse. But when we look at our national data, uh, between two-thirds and three-quarters of the cases that end up uh, substantiated, so through investigation, they're determined uh, to have child abuse or neglect happening, anywhere from two-thirds to three-quarters of those cases are for child neglect. And so a child doesn't have enough food, they don't have uh, access to shelter or uh, other basic needs, medical care, education. And so the signs and symptoms of something like neglect are oftentimes much more subtle. And so uh, prior to COVID, I would say, obviously, your educators and, and others are looking for signs of abuse. So bruises, broken bones, those are the obvious things, but also looking for uh, changes in, in child's behavior. And so are they becoming more socially withdrawn? Are they Um, becoming more aggressive on the playground. I mean, these are not uh, tall tale signs or telltale signs that child abuse is occurring uh, in a home, but it it sort of raises the question about what's going on for this child. And so I think that um, as we've switched to a virtual platform, um, we've lost the ability uh, for some of those subtle cues that teachers and educators and education staff within schools otherwise could observe. Um, And so now educators are really seeing uh, their classroom through a 12-inch screen, and they're seeing individual kids in a little tiny window on their screen. And it's very difficult, I think, to connect with kids in a really meaningful way. For educators in the classroom, 
uh, think about a, a child that you've worked with who stays in for recess and just wants to talk to you. We no longer really have that opportunity uh, in the virtual format. And so, um, you know, a lot of the things that we're uh, hearing right now are, you know, educators are really trying to find ways to connect with kids through chat function, doing daily check-ins about, you know, how are you doing today and really helping kids access some of the emotional language and really trying to find out how they're doing uh, in the context of this global pandemic. Yeah, I, I mean, I can completely understand that, um, you know, those obvious marks on a child, like a physical mark, is not as easy to detect through um, through a screen. But since you're talking about how much of those cases are actually neglect rather than abuse, um, I wonder if there's anything about the virtual environment, you know, maybe being able to see a child's home or um, some interactions with family members on screen or things like that possibly helping teachers, you know, have more detail and more context about a child's home situation and maybe um, give them better tools and information to suspect that neglect is taking place. I think it provides us an opportunity or a window, uh, so to speak, into the life of a child. But again, um, you know, we have to be careful to think about the assumptions we make uh, from a little window uh, into a child's life. I think the way that we've approached uh, mandatory reporting in this country has been one of looking for problems. And so training professionals to go looking for child abuse, to look for problems. And I think one of the shifts that we can think of is looking at this virtual environment as an opportunity uh, to not necessarily just put our focuses in mandatory reporting, but as our executive director, Claire Luge in Arizona talks about, about our need to be mandatory supporters. And so thinking about our role and the role of educators as being one of identifying child and family need. And so taking this opportunity of the virtual environment to not necessarily just be looking for child abuse and neglect, but be looking for opportunities uh, to address a family need. You know, do we have a child that is complaining about being hungry? Can we connect them and their family to resources to get them what, what they need? Are they experiencing troubles with consistent housing? If so, can we get them connected early uh, to those types of resources, because so many families in the context of COVID, what we're going through with civil and racial unrest, all the natural disasters that are occurring throughout our country, families are, are struggling right now. Um, we're seeing things like unemployment affecting families, and that's causing a lot of stress uh, on families and, and impeding their abilities uh, to really be able to provide for their children in, in ways that they want. And so I think our role as professionals, and I think educators play a role in this, uh, is on helping try to identify needs early on uh, in the lives of, of kids and families. And I think the virtual environment provides us a, a small snapshot uh, for us to be curious about how it is that we as professionals uh, 
can intervene early to support parents? Um, the way that it is currently conducted, do most mandatory reporter trainings, you know, include any information or instruction on how to be, as you say, mandatory supporters? So the mandatory reporting laws in this country vary by state. And so there's a lot of variability in in who is mandated to uh, report cases of child abuse and neglect. And so there's no one sort of federal um, uh, training that is provided for mandatory reporters. Uh, the mandatory reporting trainings that that I have been part of really focus heavily on the law and the legality uh, of mandatory reporting. And I think we have a real opportunity right now to rethink the way that we do mandatory reporting. If we train people to look for problems, they will go looking for problems. If we shift our focus and say, by all means, we need to make sure that we're protecting kids and if we're concerned, here is the proper way to make a report. But at the same time, suggesting that part of our role is really one of identifying child and family need. So we early on can intervene with families, get them connected to the supportive resources that they need, and try to avoid these very costly downstream interventions like child welfare. So it sounds like you're talking about taking a more proactive approach, which is not waiting until something has happened for a teacher to then report it to the proper authorities, but um, you know, creating conditions in which child abuse and neglect may not happen in the first place. That's exactly right. And at Prevent Child Abuse America, that's what we've been working on for the past 50 years is how do we create the conditions and context where child abuse and neglect never occur? If you think about our system of support that we have in this country, really one of the only entry points for families to get support is through child welfare. Uh, We don't have a universal system of care and support for kids and families in this country. Uh, And that's one thing that we've really been advocating for is how do we create new opportunities, new doors for families to go through uh, early on? We know that all families need support of some kind. The timing of that support, uh, the nature of that support, the quantity of that support might differ, but all families need support. And so how do we build a system of universal access to support so families can get the help that they need very early on. And so we don't have to rely on our child welfare system as the single entry point uh, into services. Do you think the pandemic is changing that in any ways, just by availability of um, food banks or, you know, pro bono mental health services or the like? We have seen since the start of COVID-19 greater collaboration, I think, among organizations uh, in our field. I think that right now we have an opportunity as a field to fundamentally rethink the way that we support families. I think that there's a lot of discussions going on right now about creating a better normal. And by a better normal, we're saying creating a system of support for parents where it's the norm that we recognize that all families need support. And so, you know, using a food bank would be a normal part 
uh, of a community, having access to uh, a home visiting program or a family resource center in your community would be the norm because it's a recognition that all families need support. We've also seen through the pandemic, uh, the need for economic supports to families, very tangible supports, things like paid family leave, providing uh, the opportunity for people in the workforce to care for a sick uh, child or a loved one without having to compromise their employment, making sure that families have access to affordable, high-quality childcare. So again, they can provide what's best for their children without compromising their ability to stay in the labor market. Um, I want to resist the urge of putting all responsibilities um, on teachers, but it seems like, you know, parents play a critical role in this issue and um, teachers may be having now more than ever an opportunity to engage with parents and speak directly to them um, to see them on screen. Do you think that that provides uh, new opportunities that may help to kind of get in front of this issue? You raise such an important point about the critical role of educators and education systems right now. And um, I agree with the point that we are asking so much of our educators right now. Uh, In the context of COVID-19, since the shelter-in-place orders, uh, basically overnight, our educators had to uh, become experts in delivering education virtually. Um, they have to, you know, we're hearing a lot of conversations about the, the need for educators to get kids caught up academically to address their social and emotional needs. And here I am talking today about, oh, and your role uh, in supporting supporting families. So I, I don't say this lightly because Um, All of our teachers, our educators, everyone working within these systems uh, have a lot on their plates right now. And I I hope that the message I can share is that there are many of us within our profession uh, that are wanting to be supporters of educators, not placing the sole responsibility on educators right now. But the other point you make about the responsibility for child abuse and neglect, it's really Uh, a responsibility of everyone. It's the responsibility of communities. It's the responsibility of parents to ensure uh, that we create the conditions and context for safe, stable, nurturing relationships and environments. I think educators have an opportunity to talk to parents, uh, to get to know them just as they do the, the kids in their class and to Uh, use the virtual platform as an opportunity to reach out and see how families are doing. And when family need is identified, that we look within our communities for what resources are out there and that we advocate when resources don't exist in our communities to make sure that we have those resources for when family needs are identified. Um, What are some things that you might tell uh, educators and you know, school systems that they can be doing to create an environment where child abuse and neglect um, are unlikely to take place at all? First off, I would say to educators and education systems, thank you for everything that you're doing and can and have done for kids and families that 
Um, it's a very difficult job under the best of circumstances in the context of COVID-19. The job is even harder. I think that as we think about uh, education systems, there's been a big movement over the last, I would say, decade or so to create what's called trauma-informed systems or trauma-informed schools. And so the idea is that uh, we look at our policies, we look at our practices, and we integrate what we know about the effects of trauma Uh, into everything we do, how we respond to kids, how we engage kids, the the ways that we construct our classrooms, the types of policies that we have in place. And at the same time, creating a trauma-informed system also means that we're looking at the health and well-being of those who are employed within our system. And so the idea of uh, secondary trauma, of burnout, the idea that as an educator, you're hearing about stories of things that are going on in kids' lives, that starts to really affect you. Uh, And so part of a trauma-informed system really addresses the health and well-being of those who are employed within uh, these systems. So I think in the creation of a a trauma-informed system, we're really taking into account what we know about trauma, what we know about child development, and really what we know about connecting families uh, with support early on to avoid many of these downstream consequences that end up uh, having families involved in our child welfare system. You mentioned earlier that our system is one that um, is designed to identify problems. And, you know, this pandemic has created a, a lot of Uh, circumstances that put a strain on families, whether it's um, health and safety issues or job loss or lost wages. But, um, you know, it has also provided opportunities for children and uh, families to be home together and maybe have quality time together. And do you see kind of a silver lining to this in terms of maybe what it... um, the good, the positive things that it can foster for families um, that go toward preventing child abuse and neglect? I think that during the pandemic, we've heard anecdotal reports from parents and and from many throughout our home visiting and, and chapter networks about the incredible resilience of families and communities during this time. Uh, we've seen uh, the ways in which our child serving systems have had to shift. I know that early on, uh, when we were talking about our home home visiting program, Healthy Families America, we had stories of home visitors finding new ways to connect with families, reading to uh, kids uh, through Zoom, and still providing those those connections. And what we've heard is parents have have done an incredible job of finding new opportunities to connect with their kids. They're finding opportunities to look through photo albums and talk about family history, to get in the kitchen and share a a cultural or a family recipe uh, with their children, to go on walks, uh, to, to rediscover what it means to unplug and really spend time with your, with your kids and your family. So there have been these incredible opportunities of connection and reconnection that we've seen and an immense amount of resilience that parents have been able to, uh, to access during this very, very challenging time. Thank you so much, Bart, for uh, your time.
Well, thank you for having me. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we bring you conversations like this one. So if you like what you heard, you can keep up with future episodes by subscribing on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. This episode was edited by me, Emily Tate, and produced by Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with the next episode of our Pandemic Campus Diary series. Thanks for listening.